Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Hi, I'm Grant Haver, and I want to introduce you to the newest podcast on the DSR Network, Next in Foreign Policy. Every other week, Zoe Weinberg and I talk with new and emerging foreign policy experts about the issues of today and tomorrow. We've covered everything from the war in Ukraine to the impact of pop culture on policy. So if you want to better understand the people and ideas that will be shaping the debate in Washington and around the world for years to come, check us out wherever you find your podcasts. As you've come to rely on Deep State Radio's in-depth expert analysis, we hope that you will consider becoming a member to support our efforts. Members receive access to exclusive bonus content on Tuesdays and Thursdays, the opportunity to participate in discussions via our member Slack community, our weekly member briefings, and our new Ukraine Daily Brief newsletter, delivered to your inbox each evening. To become a member, visit bit.ly slash dsrmember and enter code MARCH2022 to receive 28% off a monthly or annual membership. Thank you. This is Deep State Radio, coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Hello and welcome to the latest of the podcast. I'm your host, David Rothkopf. I'm coming to you from New York City and coming to you from Washington, D.C., we have Rosa Brooks of Georgetown University Law Center. How are you today, Rosa? I'm very well, thanks, David. And Corey Shockey of the American Enterprise Institute. How are you today, Corey? I am exceedingly well because it's almost baseball season, David. Almost very, very close to baseball season. And of course, that's a highlight every year for Ed Luce of the Financial Times. How are you doing today, Ed? <laughs> Tip top condition, thank you. Tip top. What are you looking forward to from the American baseball season, Ed? I'm looking forward to the uh, the, the DC team doing well, something like. That. <laughs> <laughs> How to say I'm English without saying I'm English? I think uh, alert DSR listeners might have picked that up already. That, that you're English? Yes. No. No. That's true. They're very very perceptive crowd. And they expect your perceptiveness to help them figure out what's going on in Ukraine. Because, you know, Corey, I like sit there and I follow Twitter. You know, it's like the old days when Trump was president because, you know, something was going to happen every few minutes. And so I'm watching Ukraine-related Twitter, and it goes kind of like this. Russia is pulling back dramatically from its offensive around Kyiv. And then the Ukrainians say, no, they're not. This is Russian lying, and they're just trying to bait us into pulling back. And then people say there's progress on negotiations. And then other people say, no, there's not progress on negotiations. And, you know, they could be confused. But you probably know what's really happening, Gordy. So what's, like, really happening? 
all of those things are really <laughs> happening. This is what closet calls the fog of war. It's really hard to tell what's happening. And what you also see is um, if, if so, Clausewitz so, had only had Twitter, no, he, he would have been terrible. Have you ever tried to read Clausewitz's on war? It it's so turgid and Germanic and almost unendurable. I shudder to think what it might have been like before his wife took the manuscript out of his hands and dramatically improved and reorganized it. But it does look like the Russians are pulling back some troops from around Kiev. And that would be consistent with what the Russians say they are doing, which is focusing in the near term on Donetsk and Luhansk, where they have a greater prospect of success than they had in Kiev. And they could well be trying to trap the Ukrainian troops that are in the eastern and southern part of the country to destroy the interior lines of communication for Ukraine and create two separate areas of fighting. But none of that should obscure the fact that the Russians are failing miserably at this and failing miserably at the tasks of basic military proficiency. They can't conduct combined arms operations. They can't supply troops at the speed troops are moving. They are experiencing not just desertions and even defections, but there are either even suggestions Russian troops are killing their commanders. And the stalwart work of Ukrainian defense forces, Ukrainian civil defense forces, and the resilience of Ukrainian society has been quite extraordinary. The last thing I'll say is that we shouldn't avert our eyes from the genuine barbarity of what the Russians are doing. 5,000 civilians dead in Mariupol, the Ukrainian troops refusing to depart the city while people are still there are probably going to be exterminated by the Russians. Their inability to conduct an actual military operation has led them to bombarding civilian targets. And in particular, that signature Russian military move, bombing hospitals. So the Ukrainians, I think, have the strength to win this, but it's really horrible. And the rest of us are letting Ukraine fight alone. And just as we let Kosovars fight alone and Bosniaks and Croats fight alone for a very long time. So I am itchy at the moment about the Biden administration talking about how great we're doing because I feel like it's disrespectful to the Ukrainians who are dying while we're assisting at the margins. We let the Brits fight alone for a long time, too. Right. September 1939 to December 1941. So, Rosa, when you look at all the the fog that is coming out of Ukraine, what do you take away? What is what is your view at the moment of the way you think things are unfolding? It's really extraordinary, I think, how poorly the Russians are doing. Another thing that is really extraordinary is the Russians, the Russians have been very 
smart, at least in what they write and in the past about what they do, about recognizing that gray zone warfare is probably the way to go and that conventional military action is likely to be bloody and inconclusive and embarrassing and that focusing on you know financial warfare, cyber war, et cetera, information war may be more effective. They've been super smart about that in the past. And yet, weirdly, when it comes to Ukraine, and we all thought, I certainly thought that they would continue with that gray zone warfare and not resort to conventional military force, except on the margins. But instead, they seem to have gone you know, all in on, in some ways, 19th century military strategy. You know, They're not even using encrypted communications consistently. And they seem to have completely abandoned all that gray zone warfare stuff, which, which I find really weird. And I don't know what it means. One thing it could mean, obviously, is that the people who are making the decisions in Ukraine are not the architects of Russian military theory. Uh, it's a different set of people. And, and some of those generals like Gerasimov have been completely shut out. Um, I'd be curious to know if Corey and Ed knew, David, have any, any thoughts on what's going on there. I, I think my other two sort of reactions, one is I'm still kind of flabbergasted by the recklessness. We don't know for a fact that they're actually targeting civilian areas, but at a minimum, they are being extraordinarily reckless and indifferent to whether they are hitting civilian areas. And I still find that kind of stunning, even though I shouldn't, given Syria, given Chechnya, it's completely consistent with their past practice. And yet one always, there's there's some tiny little Steven Pinker inside everybody's head, even mine, that keeps wanting to think that, you know, things are just getting better and better and the moral arc of the universe is, you know, arcing away happily. And it's always, uh, even though I know better, kind of shocking to see, nope, not not true. My final thought, and this is something that Corey has written about, uh, and, I, and I had a very similar reaction, is that it's not necessarily a good thing for us or for the Ukrainians that Russia's doing so badly. Uh, and, you know, as Corey, uh, let Corey articulate her own argument, because she'll do it far better than I would. But a failing military in some ways is a very dangerous military because they become more desperate, more brutal. The exit, the off ramps become more complicated and more difficult. And I do worry about that a lot. I worry about I worry about what a desperate Putin and a whole lot of desperate conscripts running around Ukraine are likely to do. Okay, so I'd like to get Ed's take on on where he thinks things are now. Then we're going to go back, and that'll give you a chance to respond to that, Corey. And we'll go back and also look at what we see as medium term and longer term implications of what's going on now. But Ed, I've noticed in your Twitter feed, you have flagged some of these signs of potential opportunity, but you've also been in your columns kind of skeptical of it. So how do you reconcile the two? I'd go with uh, the Peter Porantzoff famous book title, um, Nothing is True, Everything is Possible. And, you know, with the general precept that diplomacy is war by other means and vice versa. And so deep skepticism as to anything that the Russians might be prepared to offer their Ukrainian counterparts in these talks in Turkey. And deep skepticism is to even if the Ukrainians accept something interim as to whether it will be seen as anything more than a pause in Putin's brain uh, and anything more than a, a regrouping moment whilst he plans the next stage, because it's very clear that you know, his larger aims 
have been consistent for many, many years. And I don't believe that the last five weeks of humiliation on the conventional battlefield are going to change Putin's mind one jot. So we're going to be entering, a, 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 in a way, a kind of gray zone in terms of whether this is war or diplomacy when they're two sides of the same coin. And what I fear is that this will be, in just the same way, the shocking overtness and ambition and callousness of what happened after February the 24th unified us. I fear that the more murky, ambivalent sort of steps that we're going to be probably seeing in the coming days and weeks are going to lead to a sort of loosening of of the Western alliance and an enhancing of some of the differences that are there between us. And the biggest difference is really between the Poland-Baltic state and to some extent British position, joint expeditionary force position, which is more hawkish, and you know the German-French one, which is much more enthusiastic about talks. And Macron has, of course, talked to Putin more than anybody else. So I fear that a relaxation, that, that a slight sort of coming off the boil of the situation on the ground in Ukraine will lead to a relaxing, or at least there's a danger it'll lead to a relaxation of European and, well, transatlantic unity on this question. But bottom line is, I really don't know. And, and you know, everything is possible. Nothing's true. Ori, I'm going to say something now which will inflame many of our listeners, which is why I'm not saying it on Twitter because I, if it's too annoying to begin, we hear back from them, but here I don't have to hear back from them. And that is that Macron is turning out to be the Barack Obama of Europe. Explain what I mean. <laughs> uh, let's see. <laughs> Supreme confidence that you're the smartest person in the room and condescending to everyone else's ability or appreciation of a particular problem. I think if Barack Obama were president of the United States right now, the U.S. position would be the French position. Oh, interesting. Say more, David. Well, I just think, you know, Macron is like, let's have a solution. Let's take any solution. I'll take, you know, I don't want to have this conflict. You know, I'll find a way out. I'm talking to Putin. Putin is saying this, you know, it it just echoes to me, you know, the, the vibe that I was getting out of the Obama administration around Crimea. Interesting. A very unflattering reflection on the president, but you make a good case, David. <laughs> and I'd, I'd add in, I mean, this is how Obama treated the Tea Party, which is like, okay, you're nuts, but let's reasonable people can find a reasonable solution and then agrees to the Bowles-Simpson plan, which is conceding half of what the Tea Party were completely monstrously demanding. So I, I, I think he, he had form in terms of other horizons of negotiation. I have a hard time transporting myself back to Crimea, but I do have two other Obama data points, namely the ease with which he declared the Syria red line and then the agonized talking himself out of it, which had terrible consequences for Syrians and advantageous ones for Russians but also candidate Obama's reaction to Russia's invasion of Georgia in 2008, which I only remember because I was working on the McCain campaign at the time. And it took three or four days before Mike McFall was able to get his hands around 
the microphone and clarify what the what would get candidate Obama out of hot water in terms of well, you know, both of them have some some legitimate points here. Sort of reminds me of President Obama saying that the countries of the Gulf really need to they and Iran both have interests in the Middle East. It's both true and unhelpful to the people you're trying to help. And I think that for me is the comparison to President Macron. It feels a lot more like it's about President Macron than it's about helping Ukrainians or protecting Ukrainians. Yeah. I mean, you know, today, President Macron apparently relayed that he spoke to Putin. And um, if I were Macron, I wouldn't keep speaking to Putin because every time he speaks to Putin, Putin lies to him and then he buys it and then he says it publicly. And then it turns out that Putin was lying to him. But today, Macron saw it within his Jupiterian wisdom. Jupiterian wisdom, also that, that, you know, that he would relay that Putin said that, uh, you know, the only way that there will be a solution in Mariupol is if the nationalists, what Putin called nationalists, people defending their own country, gave up. And so, you know, what Macron is like, you know, why is he serving as the messenger for Putin? Since, Rosa, you're the only person here who's a member of the Obama administration, you may defend it against my calumny. I mean, I, I do think that that's one of the major criticisms that can be leveled against the Obama administration was that there was always a little bit of this, a little bit of that, not quite enough of anything. You know, I mean, it was always so ambivalent that it was very and, and, and I think, you know, I, 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 I empathize with Obama, you know, super smart guy prone to seeing all the complexities, all the painful complexities of the world. Which, as as Corey said, you know, they're there. It's it's right. It's also sort of not necessarily helpful when you get so mired in the complexities that you can't really figure out any decisive action one way or the other. So, so I don't I don't think that is unfair at all. I you know I was thinking uh, I was thinking if anybody here who's ever been through mediation sessions or learned anything about mediation, one of the things that they always say about mediation is that it's useful if both parties have a good faith desire to resolve a problem. It's completely useless if one party has no interest in doing anything except burning it all down, because all that will happen then is that the, you know, the reasonable party will make concession after concession and things won't go anywhere uh, except except downhill. And I feel like that is certainly that the the Macron situation right now, you know, he, he keeps thinking he's going to, you know, get something reasonable and he doesn't and he won't. Putin must be giggling to himself about this at this point. Do you really think Putin giggles? He looks like a giggler to me. Yeah. <laughs> I don't think after all the Botox, he actually has the ability to control his facial muscles adequately to do yeah, that. He can't even sneer. <laughs> he can't even sneer. His face is just frozen. Yeah, no, like, it's that like, kind of Botox, that Kardashian Botox mask that he's got. His face has been frozen like that since he was a toddler. He's sort of a victim. You know how your mom says, don't make that face, it'll stick that way. I think he, you know, he got this sort of uh, cold stare stuck on his face at a very early age, and it's it just stuck that way. Well, that's quite possible. By the way, your description of the sort of marriage counselor dynamic with one party wanting to burn it down and the other one trying to be reasonable all the time sounds a lot like American politics, too. People may use it in a variety of ways. But, Ed, you know, one of the things that I think is underplayed here 
is how un Obama like Biden is being. Yeah, that's it's it's a very a very very good point. I just have to add, having been through a divorce that involves some mediation, I'm really glad Macron wasn't the mediator. So uh, that's just my gratuitous, uh, you know, personalization of the of the very eloquent point Rosa just made. Biden is, you know, he he always talks about getting his Irish up. He's not afraid to sort of have the blood coursing through his veins. And again. I understand why, for many reasons, Obama felt the need for emotional restraint, not least his color. And I also understand in 2008, in the context of Iraq and um, American overenthusiasm, why when McCain says we're all Georgians now, Obama recoils from that. I mean, it was, it was good politics at the time. But Biden's clearly got passion and unafraid to convey that passion and even to walk it back when all the people around him are walking it back for him. I don't find that particularly worrying. I, I mean, I, I think, you know, Putin must know that Biden would like him to go and that everybody else, even Macron, would probably like him to go. And that when he spoke out of turn, that's Biden, that this didn't suddenly become a NATO war aim. So uh, it's questionable, you know, whether the speech in Warsaw Mightn't have had a bigger impact, though, if if Biden hadn't done that ad lib, because that speech, whether you agree with it or not, is a potentially very important speech in Biden's presidency and in this sort of age, new age of the revenge of geopolitics, in which he's declared, rightly or wrongly, uh, this kind of pretty stark autocracy versus democracy dividing line, not quite Reagan-esque. Darth Vader versus Luke Skywalker language, but it's pretty clear. And that's, he's nailed that to the mast. And I think, you know, before February the 24th and before that speech in Warsaw, there was some debate about whether it had been a mistake to hold the democracy summit, which was only last December. It wasn't long ago. I still think it was a mistake. I remember India was part of it. Being a democracy doesn't necessarily decide what your stance is on the Russian invasion of Ukraine. Or on democracy, for that matter. Or on democracy, yeah, in India's case. So, but there's no doubt about it. Biden is a very, very different character to Obama. And I'm very glad it is Biden and not Obama who's president in this crisis. Very glad. Yeah, no, no, me as well. You know, on this point of this historic speech, but, you know, Corey, I, I, I think it was kind of historic in the sense that, you know, he was defining this dividing line in the new Europe, in much the same way that Churchill did in Fulton, Missouri. Um, And I think the significance of the speech was as much for what comes after this war in Ukraine as, as for the outcome of that war. Needless to say, it got caught up in a, you know, media hubbub over a few words. And that carried through to the president's press conference yesterday. And they were so eager to play the game of gotcha that, you know, they missed the point of the press conference, which was the budget. And a central element of that budget is spending on security. And, you know, in some respects, this budget is going to be the first Cold War to, you know, characterize it how you will, budget that we've got. But it seems to me that the two possibilities will be Biden will get what he asks for or more. 
you know, that we, we are in a new stance. And I'm wondering how you think about that. So I think that's right, David, but partly because Biden didn't ask for nearly enough. The administration is trumpeting a 4% increase in defense spending. That's not in real terms. That's in nominal terms. The budget is built on a 2.5% inflation figure, and inflation's running about 7.5% right now. So in real terms, it's actually a cut in defense spending. I'm celebrating the 14% increase in State Department spending. But again, those are nominal terms. So in real terms, it's about a 7% increase in State Department funding and a decrease in defense spending. Moreover, the strategy that the Biden administration is advocating expands the aperture of what is appropriate military spending to include climate change, to include global health. Those are good things, but they're not in particular defense things. And so, you know, last year, Congress plussed up the Biden budget request by $23 billion. My bingo card has them plussing it up by $50 billion this year. What do, you, what do you think of this, Rosa? Because, I, you know, we are seemingly entering a new period of heightened tension, and that's going to translate, I have to translate, I suspect, into more money for defense and, one hopes, for the State Department. Uh, are we trending in the right direction or not? Nothing is trending in the right direction. I mean, I mean, I, I agree with Corey's analysis. I, th- I think that it, we will obviously be increasing spending on defense. I don't I don't see that there's any alternative right now, given what's going on in the world, uh, which is very scary. I was going to say, you know, every day there's not a nuclear war is kind of a good day at the moment. But I think that 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 I suspect that's on a pillow in your living room, isn't it? Absolutely. But I think that the the prospect of both conventional warfare spreading throughout more of Europe, the possibility of the use of nuclear weapons, the, you know, the unimaginable becoming imaginable again, all of those things, of course, are going to drive Congress to say, whatever, what, what can we throw at this? That sometimes means that they throw money at stupid stuff, but they're definitely going to be throwing money around for a while. I agree with you that it's sort of a shame uh, that Biden's final off-the-cuff comments in Warsaw took center stage because it, it, it sort of upstaged everything else uh, that he was talking about. But the good news, David, is that now that Will Smith has slapped Chris Rock, that has completely pushed the Biden remarks off the front pages as, as, as another major world crisis. Yeah, that's what I plan to talk about in the remaining third of the show, right after we take our break, is your opinions on, on Chris Rock and Will Smith and the geopolitical implications. That's actually not true, but you won't find out what we're going to talk about in the remaining third unless you're a member. So go become a member, and then you can hear the whole broadcast. And if, if you're not, and you're just going to go away, well, goodbye, and we're about to have a really good conversation without you. And with that, we'll take a brief break, and we'll be back in a moment. 